My, my, good people of the internet, it looks like Christmas is finally here. And I got some of my guests here to help me help you spread a little holiday love. Good luck. <laughs> oh, well, I know here at the Higher Side Jets, we couldn't be more giddy about it. And why not celebrate the corporate-driven season of spending with a gift that, oh, so ironically, spits right in the face of the Christmas machine with the sweet, sweet softness of a t-shirt for the rebellious fashionista in your life from my little clothing brand over at Conspiracies.net. This is one of the most degrading things that anyone could possibly do. Uh, thanks, Friedman. Or better yet, give them the gift that gives all year long with the subscription to THC Plus for one of your oh-so-precious friends and family. I know that's what Jim Mars is doing, right, man? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence myself. <laughs> Guys, this is not constructive. Duncan Trussell, help me out here. If I were Satan, the first idea I'd want to implant into their heads is... Okay, that's not what I had in mind either, but if you know someone who enjoys THC, just go to the HigherSideChatsPlus.com with any credit or debit card and put in the email address and information for that special someone in your life rather than yourself. I know I and all the great guests on THC would really appreciate it. We don't want to kill anybody or hurt anybody. We want to make a system that works. Jacques, I think that approach is actually illegal. Let's not do that. It was a great idea, but it doesn't go far enough. No, man, it went too far. But guys, all I'm saying is a year or six months of THC Plus makes a great gift. Believe me, I just signed Douglas Dietrich up for a year and he couldn't be happier. (laughs) I love you dearly. Uh, (laughs) Yes, uh, honestly, uh, you flatter me too much. If you were a member of the opposite sex, I would propose. See what I tell you. Merry Christmas, people. The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something there beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Dr. Zayas. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. All right, higher side chatters, when it comes to our health and our environment, what's natural and what's synthetic, There is so much manipulation by the cabal that controls the information, education, and the entire medical infrastructure that it's harder and harder for a person born into the modern world to separate how it is from how it should be. Now, a lot of us know Big Pharma and the corporate overlords are lying to us, only hoping to drain us financially until our dying breath, but we struggle to track down the truths needed to feel confident with any of the alternatives in this great age of unknowing. Still, with autism rising to scary heights, the strange Morgellons condition receiving more and more attention, and the realization that a lot of our bodies are breaking down faster than they should be, the deck seems too intelligently stacked against us to be mere coincidence. Well, here to show us what she sees in the cards and give us her analysis of this far-reaching situation is the highly respected Sophia Smallstorm, a meticulous researcher and exceptional speaker who has covered quite a few alternative subjects, From false flags and fluoride to geoengineering and synthetic biology, she's been on THC once before, detailing her excellent breakdown of Sandy Hook, and it's a real pleasure to have her back today. From just up the 5 freeway, another San Diego local, Sophia, welcome back to the higher side. You're so nice, Greg. That was (laughs) such a nice introduction, and you are, you know, 
You're quite the phenomenon yourself. Uh, I don't think I can claim the things that you assign to me. But anyway, thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I really appreciate you being here. I've been hearing you talk about the subjects we have on the table today, and I'm just really blown away by the scope of what seems to be happening from this descent into biological darkness to the covert promotion and infiltration of synthetic life. We do seem to be in troubled times, but hopefully by the end of this conversation, people have a little clearer picture of these agendas and how we can protect ourselves as much as we can. And to get us started, a lot of this revolves around a need to kind of reframe the way we see some things in the areas of health and wellness, because it seems like we've been sold bad information and a false paradigm. So if we start with sepsis and this term biological darkness... Help us understand this cycle and how it's being manipulated. Okay, well, sepsis is a term for, you could call it putrefication, degeneration, decay. In medical terminology, septic shock or to go in a, into a state of sepsis means your blood is full of bacteria. You have a bacterial infection that's so drastic and dire that your body's not able to deal with it. But what alerted me and set off, you know, a cascade of revelation and dawning in my brain was when I was um, watching a video, which is really a video about the flat earth. And I was trying to, you know, just someone had recommended it to me. He said it was one of the best that had been made. Mm -hmm. I have to give him credit. Shazbar Bukti, that's his name. You can look it up on YouTube, try to spell it. But he pointed out that the light of the sun and the light of the moon are distinctly different and that sunlight, obviously, which we experience during the day, is golden, warm, drying, life-giving, antiseptic, preservative, and cleansing. And that moonlight, in contrast, is silver, not gold. It's cold. It's damp. It promotes necrosis, putrefication, and sepsis. And I thought, you know what? He is right. And then I started thinking about day and night and how in its time period that the sun gets, the weak sunlight is antiseptic. It does dry up and kill molds and heat destroys bacteria. And at night when it's cold, that's when the decay cycle can go on and it needs to go on because Part of life is death or decay. You know, this is why we have winter. Winter is when plants and trees kind of go dormant for a while and the decay process can accelerate over those cold, damp, darker months. And lots of dead material, dead matter can be rendered by organisms that are called detritivores. They can render material into food and nutrients and sustenance for the spring and summer when life blooms once again. So I realized that we have a antisepsis and sepsis cycle going on between day and night and winter and summer. And all told overall with the numbers of hours for day and night as they switch over, you know, the seasons and then the seasons themselves, it's pretty much a 50-50 deal. 
So I then watched an interview. This is all, I just stumbled into this. And that's what I like about doing this research independently. You can just stumble along. I'm sure you've experienced this, Greg. And -hmm. the next thing just plops into your lap, right? Right. Yeah. So I then came across a video that was an interview between Dr. Mercola, whom lots of people know, Joe Mercola, and this photobiologist called Alexander Wunsch from Germany. And he's a very brilliant man. And he was talking about how we absolutely need sunlight, proper sunlight, to make vitamin D. It's essential. It's it's critical to hundreds and hundreds of biological processes that it triggers inside us. And these biological processes keep us going. They keep us healthy. You can Google vitamin D and see how many things in your body it supports, including the fact that it affects something like 3,000 of your genes. But regardless, it's very important then to have proper daylight, to have exposure to the sun on your skin, in your eyes. And at night, You know, that's when our bodies go dormant. That's why we go to bed and we lie down in the darkness, because that's time for our body to go into deep repair mode on the cellular level. So when we are not exposed to enough sunlight, and this is primarily during the winter, but it also could occur during the summer. People who work in offices that are lit with artificial bulbs, you know, the artificial light bulbs, the ones that they're trying to plaster us with now don't give you the full light spectrum the way the incandescent bulbs do light artificial light must be accompanied by thermal energy or heat in order to be effective in terms of our biology otherwise it puts us in a state of biological darkness and biological darkness just means that hundreds of activities that our body requires for optimal functionality are not going on. It's the equivalent of living in darkness. Right. Yeah, this seems to be a big can of worms. We talked about it a little bit the other day. An analogy could almost be that the earth is kind of sleep deprived because it's not getting its chance to repair itself. And then in the spring, things are coming back weaker than they should be in the natural world. And this is kind of how the balance is being completely tilted to one side, right? Yes, and what you're referring to, Greg, is that what's happening on the earth in terms of environment is we have been pushed more into sepsis than the sun cycle. So the chemtrails, the layering of the sky with these particulate sheets, you know, the white haze, as some people call it, and I'm looking into our sky today. This is a San Diego chemtrail You know, it's like a mad painter with a milky brush. And -hmm. yesterday was totally clear, as you remember. But the presence of artificial clouds, what some people call stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, that converts the warm, golden, antiseptic effect of sun, the health-giving effect of real sun, into sort of an analog of sepsis moon it changes the frequencies it makes them cold silver frequencies the light of the sun so we're not getting the golden light of the sun with chemtrails with the chemtrail agenda we're getting the silver light of sepsis and so that's throwing the earth into havoc because once again winter and summer are the seasonal changeover and the 
Plants and trees go to sleep in the winter, and if you've noticed, as I have over the last few years, we've got heat waves until November. The East Coast is reporting, you know, balmy days in the high 60s and 70s in areas where it should be down in the 50s and 40s. And I noticed that leaves are not falling off the trees as they should. And they're not, the trees are not going to sleep properly for the winter. I'm using very simplistic terms. And then in the last few years, this is like clockwork. They've given us heat waves in late January and February. So the trees all start to bud. My mother even told me that in New York, certain bushes are budding now because of the warm weather and they think it's spring. So what does that do? That means that the following life cycle, if the dormancy has not been long enough and the plant is, as you say, sleep deprived, the earth is sleep deprived, then the following life cycle becomes weak. It cannot, it's not a strong, properly birthed and generated next generation. Hmm. Wow. I just think this is such an interesting perspective that the environment is being altered in such a way, keeping these proper processes from triggering. And I've definitely noticed, just like you said, trees that don't seem to complete their cycle in the winter months. Sometimes you just see what looks like a fall to spring process. The fall colors come and then the buds start forming just shortly after. I just hadn't looked at that as a clue to a larger agenda or really consider that it was engineered. Yeah, the process isn't full. Actually, the reason for leaves turning color, that is a protective defense mechanism of trees. These pigments are biopolymers, and when the tree's leaves turn red, the tree is actually transferring whatever nutrients are left in the leaf to the more permanent parts of itself, like the branches and bark and trunk. And the red color is actually a sunscreen. The sun is already waning and receding, right? We have fewer hours of sunlight and its power is far less in the autumn and winter. So the tree, as the leaves lose their ability to make food, they turn color and they turn from green to yellow, that's a sign of death, and then yellow to orange and orange to red. And the tree is transferring the nutrients so that it can store them, and then the leaves fall off. And what's happening now is the leaves are not falling off fully. I'm looking at a sycamore outside my window. It has leaves on it that are brown from last winter. And this winter it hasn't lost its leaves, even though we've had some heavy-duty winds recently. And that means those leaves will cling because the tree is desperate. It's trying to hold on to life. It will cling. Those leaves will cling until the spring. And then when the new life comes, there won't be spots for the new leaves. Mm -hmm. So overall, we are getting a continued presence of desperate clinging in the natural world from the past season of life and then weaker and weaker new seasons. And, you know, this is going to eventually eradicate and wipe out many, many different forms of flora and fauna. Mm. You will notice, as I have, I didn't know why, but, you know, as I learn, I know why. Conifers or pine trees, there's an expression called going to cone. It means that That's when the tree is ready to reproduce. The pine cones are like the reproductive fruits of the tree. 
Pine trees, conifers should only go to cone once every 10 years. And guess what? In America, they're going to cone every year. Wow. That means they're desperate. Mm. Yeah, you hear about the decline of biodiversity, not only in the mainstream, but even people that I have more faith in say the data there seems to be pretty clear, and that's pretty concerning. And you mentioned beforehand how some of the agenda is affecting the individual, but what more can be said about that? Can we get a bit deeper into how this promotion of the biological darkness cycle is affecting the bioterrain of the human body specifically? Well, let me just throw this in to, to finish up the what we were just talking about. Sure. I believe that as the natural species disappear and become weaker and weaker and are effectively made extinct, we're going to get companies like Syngenta and Monsanto, you know, hailing us and saying, well, we are losing all our trees, but we've now genetically engineered 12 or 15 varieties of trees. We have them, people. Hmm. You want trees in your yard? Call us. We'll sell you the trees. We'll come and plant them for you. And they are going to be drought tolerant and very, you know, stable. They're, of course, not going to be reproductive, but you will license them from us every year. And at least you'll have shade and your, uh, the Agenda 21 community that you live in will look pretty. I could see that. Monsanto graduating from genetically modified crop seeds to whole trees. I could see that being a big problem. Well, no, it's going to be a solution. We ha we're in the problem now, but that will be the solution that's offered. Problem, reaction, solution. Rolling it out once again. So you mentioned the human biology, and you wanted to know how the biological darkness affects that, the sepsis. So we're in constant flux and trouble. Our bodies are not able to keep a good functionality going. We're seeing lots of degenerative disease. We're not dying from microbial disease anymore because of hygiene and sanitation that has been introduced into our lives through, you know, infrastructure of cities and whatnot. Most people today in the cities have flush toilets. They have running water. They don't have to fetch water and use an outhouse like they did in previous generations. So our sanitation has greatly improved our health because we're not fighting bacteria. There's a very famous book called The Mirage of Health by René Dubot, who was a French scientist and doctor, I believe, and he taught at Harvard. And in the 50s, I think it was 1959, he came out with this book, The Mirage of Health. And in it, he said that the main contributor to improved health, vitality, longevity, there were two things, not medicine by any means. The advent of glass windows and houses, because the glass, it amplified the effect of sunlight, right? It intensified. So sunlight is a natural disinfectant and the dankness and the dampness that people had in their houses, which contributed to a lot of respiratory disease, colds and whatnot, flus. This was greatly minimized by having glass windows that let light in and kept houses bright. And then the other very important shift was people starting to change their underwear wearing underwear that they changed and washed every day. So that was a very big contributor to health. And, of course, the running water and 
the food industry that gave us trucked fresh vegetables to us and so forth. But of course, fighting that with the food that was highly packed with preservatives. I mean, there's always a seesaw going. So we are fortunate in that we can choose to live in greater and better states of health. But if we fall for all the bad information and the marketing of, you know, products, for instance, today we don't have microbes in our houses, but we have wireless radiation. We have electromagnetic fields. We have tremendous numbers of man-made chemical compounds. And this was part of the, you know, age of cleanness. You may not remember because you weren't born then, but housewives in the 50s were taught by television to spray Lysol and DDT was even sprayed on sandwiches by mothers mm. who were making lunch for their children. Wow. Man, so if we get to the fundamentals here, I mean, the entire medical field is kind of based on this germ theory, and that's a real cornerstone principle. Apparently, this is a, a fallacy. I mean, where do we get this idea? Can you help us untangle this and make the case that it's not actually true? Yeah, well, the goal of modern medicine, Rockefeller medicine, was to claim that germs or bacterium, bacteria caught microbes, microorganisms, living little wigglies, cause disease. And they have introduced another component into this theory, viruses. Now, Greg, viruses are not alive. They're not organic and they do not cause disease. There's no virus lurking in the pond to give you polio. Colds are not caused by viruses. So this viral theory of disease is a fallacy, but the bacterial possibilities of getting a disease are definitely real. If you have too much invasion of organisms in your body and you don't have enough strength in terms of the energy level of your cells and your glands and your various systems to combat infiltration, opportunistic little critters that want to eat your, you know, living tissues, then you're going to end up in a diseased state. But with lots of conditions that modern life has brought to us that I've gone through already, we don't have the battle with bacteria going on, but we do have a battle with chemicals. And so there were two rivals back in the early 1900s, and they were Louis Pasteur, who everyone has heard of. He was a famous French scientist, and then a guy called Antoine Béchamp. Béchamp lived from 1816 to 1908, and Béchamp followed the... or. He didn't originate this concept, but he was definitely putting it out that there is something in the body called bioterrain. And if it's out of balance, then we fall ill. But it's the soil that keeps us healthy. If we keep our internal soil in proper balance, then germs and things that we've lived with for thousands and thousands and thousands of years are not going to, you know, get control over us. Mm -hmm. But mainstream medicine believes that all illness is caused by germs or genetic weakness. And their solution was to give us a drug, drug intervention, one drug to match each condition that they could identify. If you have this condition, go to this drug. If this drug doesn't work, then try this drug. And that is a big moneymaker, right? 
But Mm -hmm. most illness is really due to cellular energy loss, cellular malfunction, cellular toxicity, cellular malnutrition. And all of that can be avoided or overcome by natural means. You can supply your cells with nutrients that they need, minerals. We're mineral deficient. We're mineral, vitamin, nutrient, and energy deficient. We're not fighting germs. So I wrote a newsletter on this, and then I did another radio show about it. And I don't know how much you want to get into it, but I call it the breakdown of bioterrain and then the the subsequent sepsis that develops in us if we, you know, cannot keep our own soil, as Pasteur called it, on his deathbed, he admitted Béchamp is right. It is the soil, not the germ, that makes the plant grow. But we've never heard this. We continue to live in a culture that pushes drugs and claims that diseases are caused by viruses, bacteria, and genetic predisposition. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like we find that in a lot of important areas where an entire field's way of thinking can be sourced back to just a few key players, all the major work being done in a few key corporations, and it's so susceptible to manipulation. They can just fit the science to support the agenda, and they can really influence how people think about things all inside the bubble because they control the schools and the universities, the research labs, and the flow of research funding. And it's really hard to trust your life to alternatives or know which ones to support even in that world. But another element I wanted to ask you about is the trophic chain. That is an important piece of what we're talking about too, right? Yes, absolutely. So as I learned about the difference between darkness and daylight, that one promoted sepsis, the other antisepsis, as we could call it, I thought about the trophic chain. And I had learned about the trophic chain last year or the year before as I was pursuing a study of the ocean and the plastics in the ocean. So there are trophic chains all over the earth. There's a marine chain, there's a trophic chain in, you know, Siberia, and there's a trophic chain in the rainforest. And they're all a little bit different, but they're all set up, structured, the same way. So at the bottom of the trophic chain are what we call the producers. They are life forms that produce their own food from sunlight. So plants use chlorophyll, use light to make chlorophyll, which gives them their green color. And they don't go out and hunt. They suck up sunlight and they can produce their own food and they become the food supply for levels of the trophic chain above them, which are consumer levels. So there's all kinds of consumers. There are small consumers that eat plants and bigger consumers that eat those consumers. But there are also very large size consumers, like the big whales that are plant feeding, right? And big animals, herbivores that are plant feeding. But at the very top of the trophic chain, you get the apex consumers, sometimes called apex predators. And those would be animals that have no rivals. They are among the strongest on the planet, and in their region, they dominate. So the rattlesnake is one. The rattlesnake is a very venomous reptile and might be the apex consumer in the desert. But you also have silver wolves, and you've got lions and tigers and great white sharks and bull sharks and tiger sharks. 
So those are the different kinds of apex consumers that you would encounter in different parts of the earth. But when they die, what happens to them? When a large body loses life and the carcass rots on the ground, it's set upon by scavengers. So they're another sort of side group to the trophic chain. But among the scavengers or above and beyond the scavengers are what we call the decomposers. The other word for them is detritivores. They eat the detritus. And decomposers are the kingdom of organisms, fungi. They will be even bugs and insects that come and descend on rotting, decaying matter. And they bore into it or they process it and they turn it into nutrients for the earth again, which the producers will draw on to create their life. So that's basically the trophic chain. And in our bodies, we have lots of organisms, millions and millions, some even say trillions of microorganisms that are in the fungal world and also the bacterial world. And they are taking a ride in our bodies and on our bodies. And they will go to work when we have food for them. So they even, I believe, and others who are far more advanced than I am have suggested this, they are pleomorphic in that they can alter themselves and regenerate in different forms, you could say different incarnations, based on the food, the buffet that they have available. So they're very pliable organisms in that they can, they regenerate, remember, very quickly. Mold will grow very, very fast. So the life cycle of these organisms is extremely rapid, and they can tailor themselves to the menu available to them. But we have in our bodies a process called inflammation. So when we get hurt or we start to suffer in some way, there's not enough health going on in a certain area, the body will produce this condition called inflammation. And the medical world erroneously tells us that inflammation causes disease. They say that because everywhere you look where there's lack of health, there is inflammation. And so Yes, a person who's not thinking clearly would say, oh, my gosh, look, I found inflammation here and here and here and here. It must cause the disease. But the reality is that inflammation accompanies the state of disease. Does that make sense? It does. So your body, when you hurt yourself, let's say you fall down and sprain your ankle or you are wounded or a bee stings you or something, your body will create an enlarged area around that site. That's the first sign of inflammation, swelling, right? Mm -hmm. What is it doing? Mm -hmm. It's actually opening up passages. It's opening up blood vessels. It's, it's enlarging the tissue so that the channels for repair are easier for nutrients and repair materials subcellular repair materials to travel through, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this opening of flesh inside your body, and then the heat is produced. The area gets red because there's increased blood flow to it now, and that's all for purposes of fixing what's damaged. So typically, 
the conventionally educated world, doctors and even trainers and coaches, when you sprain your ankle, they'll tell you, oh, just elevate it, ice it, wrap it up in an ace bandage. So why would you elevate a part of your body that got hurt and drain all the blood out of it when your body is trying to bring more blood to it? Why would you put ice on it and freeze it and make all those vessels constricted and tight when your body is trying to open up the tissue so it can get the fibroblasts and all the proper cells to the area for the job of fixing? And why would you wrap an ace bandage around this area tightly? Your body puts you in pain. It creates rigidity, stiffness, and pain, all are characteristics that accompany inflammation and swelling because it's telling you, hey, dude, don't move this. I have to fix it, right? So what goes to work in the process of inflammation is this four or five step cleanup and repair mechanism. So you've got cells that come in, cells and enzymes, and they actually want to do the job of fixing. So what are they doing? The first things that come in are lysosomes, which are enzymes that begin to digest injured cell materials. So we've got cells inside us that eat up our own bad tissue. And then you get a process. This is all the part of the process of chemotaxis. Chemotaxis means cleanup. And the body has a lineup of these what they call big eater cells. So you have phagocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils, and macrophages. And they come in in sequence. And each has a different function. Each has a different menu item even. And each of those releases different kinds of enzymes so that the repair process can go on as it needs to. So the macrophages are at the end of the line, and they actually consume the earlier stage cells. They'll eat up the phagocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils. And that is when the lymphocytes follow. Those are repair-oriented white blood cells, and they bring with them the materials to regenerate tissues. They are able to turn nutrients in the blood into tissue regenerators. So there's a biochemistry in inflammation, and the repair process is pretty striking. So when you allow those nutrients and those repairing cells to come in in adequate supply, you get healing. When you bind up and freeze and drain the blood out of those tissues, you are actually setting yourself up for improper, unfinished, incomplete healing and therefore a chronic problem. This is how people go, oh, I have a bad knee. Yeah, it's from playing football in high school. But that's because they did not allow the repair to go on till it was done. Hmm. So all of the things that modern methodologies give us, antihistamines, anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, they sabotage the body's repair process. Now, when your body cannot do adequate delivery to a site that's damaged of repair materials because it's been, let's say, impeded by modern medicine suggestions, right? You will have too many dying cells, too many unrepaired 
damaged tissues in that area. And that's when the opportunistic microorganisms that live inside you, the fungi and the bacteria, they are called into action. They say, oh, my gosh, I've got to start eating. Look at the buffet I have. And they start feeding on those materials in your body that are not repaired and that are dead and dying, organic debris. Those are the detritivores, the decomposers that live within our bodies. And if our bodies still cannot bring in enough repair materials now that the stuff that's toxifying, our own debris will toxify us eventually. If the body cannot get caught up, so to speak, while the detritivores that we contain start helping, then you get a complete overproduction of detritivores, of microorganisms, and then your blood becomes contaminated by them because of their waste materials. And that's when you go into a state called septic shock. So what do antibiotics do? I had to figure this out by pure thinking. When your body, when your cells are not supplying or coming in in the right formation and numbers to fix a damaged area and the bacterium and the microorganisms inside you are taking over and they're becoming too plentiful, there's too much population of that, then antibiotics are given to you and boom, they kill off the bacteria. So now you have another chance. Now you don't have a bacterial over-reproduction. You have a chance to start, if you're given enough other nutrients along with it, and they do, they'll give you glucose, saline solution, they'll give you certain minerals that will help you to get caught up, but they're not giving you enough of the right materials in a hospital setting. But if you know enough to seek additional nutritional support for cellular biology, then you can get caught up and those bacteria will not overcrowd your body. But antibiotics don't always work. And when they don't work, it's because you just didn't have enough of a chance to catch up. And bacterial overproduction will get you in the end. Or the antibiotics will kill off good and helpful bacteria as well, as we know they do. So I don't know if that makes sense. But we have a system of cooperation in our bodies. We have our own process of cellular repair, which includes chemotaxis and the elimination and ingestion and absorption, you could say, of our own dying tissues. And when we cannot do enough of that, when the dying tissues still keep occurring, we've got bacteria and organisms that live inside us and fungi like yeast, candida. Candida will eat dying cells. And when candida has a ton of food to eat, a ton of dying cells, you have a candida infection. That's also a state of sepsis, they call it. So you've got to keep that all in balance, and you've got to be able to bring in proper nutrients into your body as it's trying to keep these cells rebuilding and the bacteria at bay. The bacteria are helpers. They are called in when your cells are dying too many numbers. So I don't know. Hopefully that makes sense. So it's this whole cooperation system that's at the root of life. Right. Yeah, it definitely does make sense, although it is a kind of a new paradigm to hear about. Although I have talked to some researchers about things connected to this, like antibiotics and the idea that only because of the massive infections during war and the rolling out of penicillin, you know, that was actually responsible for the polio problem, which then 
they solved with a vaccine that was tainted with the SV40 virus, which created our modern cancer epidemic. So I've talked about some things that are similar to this or in this realm, but it does seem like they'll roll out something to solve one problem that creates an even bigger problem. They patch that up with something else that creates an even bigger problem. It's the same problem reaction solution applied to the medical field, it seems, but it is a, you know, a tangled web for sure. Well, Greg, I would volunteer that they are creating problems and then they're trotting out their solutions, but these are not actual solutions. They're just right further problems. So cancer is not caused by a virus. I have to tell you, hmm. it's just not. And this whole idea, it's the same as, you know, AIDS was created in Fort Detrick. AIDS is not caused by a virus. Both cancer and AIDS are conditions of enormous cellular energy deficiency. Cells require energy to function. And the energy currency of the cell is adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. So what happens is mitochondria are the organisms in the cell that furnish the cell with ATP. It's one of the molecules that the body actually recycles. The body will recycle cholesterol. It'll recycle ATP. So depending on what kind of cell you have, it has millions, up to millions of ATP in it. And your cells drink electrons out of the ATP all day long to do everything. And if you don't have enough electrons that's what life is. Life is the intake of electrons on the cellular level. The cells become exhausted. They can't do their housekeeping. They can't detox. They can't rebuild. They can't repair their membranes. There's all kinds of stuff they can't do, and they start dying. But before they die completely, cells can, they make a last-ditch effort to survive. Now, you know that cells reproduce by division, and mm -hmm. a cell or a cell line can go through 70 subdivisions in our bodies, and then it's retired. It's told, that's it, you're too old, new cells will replace you. So when cells become extremely tired, extremely energy deficient, it's called oxidative stress because there's too much energy loss and not enough energy resupply. When cells become oxidated and they're in too much energy loss, they will go into psycho-reproduction. They will just subdivide, subdivide, subdivide. There's a program in the body called apoptosis that tells cells when they need to retire. And these cells that are very energy-deprived can become deaf to that program. And they just keep subdividing. Keep, and that is a tumor. That's called an infinite cell or a vero cell line. And that's what cancer is. Cancer is a cell that can no longer make energy in the nucleus with the mitochondria. And it turns to the cytoplasm temporarily. This is a throwback mechanism we have. We're about 20% glucose feeding and 80% oxygen metabolizing. So the cell becomes what's called glycolytic. And it starts to make energy in the cytoplasm using enzymes out of glucose. And it can do that for a while. It, cancer cells also become very well defended. The first thing they do is put up a very thick protein shield around themselves. And they don't want anything coming in because they're so weak. 
And the only materials in your body that can break down that protein that the cancer cell has around it are the twin enzymes from the pancreas, trypsin and chymotrypsin. And unfortunately, these enzymes are used in the digestion of meat and soy. So this is why you can actually increase the size of a cancerous tumor by adding meat and soy to the diet and animal products or taking them out. So soy protein is a very complex, difficult protein to break down, just like animal protein. So that's the nature of cancer. It's pure energy deficiency. And AIDS is simply a collection of symptoms that are caused by energy deficiency, not by HIV or any virus. And I would recommend the work of Dr. Banks, Nancy Turner Banks, the book called AIDS, Opium, Diamonds, and Empire. It's a very dense, thick book, but it will drill this information into your head. Mm -hmm. And this does make sense. And I just want to elaborate on it a little bit more because it is such a different paradigm for people listening, most likely. But what is disease really? Because, I mean, people do get sick with things we're told are viruses like the flu or chicken pox or even sexually transmitted diseases like herpes and whatnot. Of course, we can't see these things with the naked eye, but it seems fairly easy to see the cause and effect in some of these cases. If you sleep with someone who has gonorrhea, you're going to get it. If you hang out around someone with chicken pox, you might get it. Uh, should we be seeing these things differently? Is there or something about this contagiousness element that's a fallacy? Yes, we should be seeing these things differently. And look, I am not a scientist, so you're going to have to bear with me as I try to explain it because this is new to me too, all right? Mm -hmm. So I'll explain to you what I think a cold is, and it has to do with sepsis. So come fall, where we are now, the sun is we'll call it receding. There's less of it. It gets dark early. It's much colder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we are busy creating energy to keep warm. And in the old days, we didn't have enough of the right foods. We were vitamin and nutrient deprived in these seasons. But mainly what I want to focus on is our tissues. So we've got we have certain tissues that are constantly exposed to the environment, like your mouth, your nose, your respiratory tract, you're inhaling. You breathe like 22, 25,000 times a day, right? Mm -hmm. So all this stuff is coming in. And your body needs to replace and repair these membranes and these tissue linings on a seasonal basis. You can't expect for your lung tissue to last all your life. So your body goes through, especially in the winter, as winter is coming, they call it cold and flu season. Your body goes through a replenishment, a rebuilding of important tissues that encounter the environment. These would be in your nasal passages, in your throat, and in your lungs. So, what happens? You have to hack, cough, sneeze. You have to remove all those old cells. And then you have to build new ones. And it takes a lot of energy to build new cells. So you feel crappy. You're tired. Your body runs a fever because while it's kicking out all those dying cells, the microorganisms are, are going, hey, we have food. Look, everyone, let's eat this stuff. We don't want those microorganisms to go into overproduction. So heat fever keeps those numbers down. And you hack and sniff and sneeze, and then you're okay, and you feel much stronger because now you have all new linings. 
So this is why when you go over to a friend's house and their kids are hacking and sneezing and they're sick, you don't get sick because you just did it three weeks ago. If you go to their house and all this stuff, these little droplets are in the air and you do get sick, it could be for two reasons. One, that you're getting a resonant signal. Your body is being, you know, reminded, hey, have you done this yet? No, we should do it then. Or you are experiencing what's called the microbiome of too many people and you then, it's too much for your body. And I'll get into this microbiome discussion because it just is very new for me. I haven't even talked about it on the air yet. So anyway, how does that strike you as an explanation for cold and flu? Well, (laughs) it's interesting. It's possible. I like the resonance signal idea. It's just tough because I really don't trust the mainstream Western view on a lot of these things, but it's hard to know how far to go with the alternative or what really to put in its place. But I did want to revisit the inflammation issue, though, because let's say someone has Crohn's disease or something related to chronic inflammation. How should they think about this stuff? Because their bodies don't seem to be healing themselves in this process, maybe because they keep disrupting it because of advice from their doctors. But how can someone with a condition of chronic inflammation actually correct the problem properly or address it differently in this alternative paradigm? Okay, so Crohn's disease then, or anything that is repetitive in nature, I would assume that Crohn's disease is in the spectrum of autoimmune issues. That's what I really think it is. A lot of these chronic illnesses are due to autoimmune irregularities. But anyway, I would tell that person to start educating themselves on real cellular nutrition. What do they need to give their bodies? For instance, let me give you an example. This is so commonly unknown, a new expression. But we're told to reduce salt right? Oh, don't eat so much salt. Oh, salt-free, sodium-free. Okay, why is that? That is because they put on our shelves a hundred or so years ago a product called table salt. What is it? NaCl, sodium chloride. That's what it is. But table salt is an artificial substance. It doesn't exist in nature. Table salt is real earth salt. Salt is found in salt veins they call them in the earth and then there's also salt that has flooded the ocean over the millennia rivers have carried minerals and dumped sediments and minerals in the ocean for millions of years so natural salt is accompanied by a huge complement of trace minerals so up to 100 120 trace minerals in himalayan salt celtic salt real sea salt, and real earth salt. So that's real salt. We need salt, Greg. We need salt because our body really needs sodium for the bloodstream. It needs things like the chloride. Salt is something like 80 to 95% sodium chloride, and then this complement of up to 100 or more trace minerals. And we need those trace minerals because the body uses them. It uses them in its biochemistry. So when you eat modern food that's prepared like you go to restaurants they don't use sea salt they will tell you when they use sea salt because it's special but they use table salt these prepared preservative laden foods are full of table salt and table salt is 
it's what they call a dead food. It's a devitalized food that deprives you of hundreds of trace minerals. So one thing that I would recommend to people is, hey, start using natural salt because it's going to give you this enormous spectrum of minerals that your body only needs teeny amounts of and you'll start to feel better, right? Now, that's not medical advice. That's common sense. So one needs to educate oneself as to how to boost the body's natural systems with natural foods and natural supplements in natural forms. Well said. So for people who might be skeptical, it does seem like you know several people personally who have healed themselves of various conditions without big pharma. Can you share some examples with the people to maybe strengthen the case that you know, this alternative paradigm is closer to the truth? Greg, I can certainly do that from my own relationships that I've had, people I've come to know, but I can talk about myself. Sure. So I am a big fan of iodine and magnesium and real salt. Those three things, which together might cost you about 25 cents or 30 cents a day. I mean, even Bums on the street could afford that. Hmm. 25 cents a day. I had such an amazing boost in well-being and health from iodine. A nutritionist turned me on to iodine. She made an offhand comment, and it just resonated with me. I got very excited. It was in the month of November, I would guess, in 2010 or 11. And I bought a bottle from her, and I started to take it. And I started with one drop, like she told me, and then I went up to about four drops after two or three weeks, and I was on this four drop of nascent iodine, which I do sell in my store, avatarproducts.com. Very in inexpensive. So I started taking this iodine, and suddenly, within about a month, I thought, why do I feel so good? I feel like I feel in the summer. Now, I swim a lot in the ocean, where there's tons of iodine in the water, because kelp, why is kelp brown? Seaweed is brown because it stores iodine. So you get a lot of absorption of iodine when you're in ocean water. And I felt in November the same way I felt in July, August. Lean, mean, fighting machine, happy, full of energy and pep. And I thought, now why is that? And it just hit me. It's that iodine. And then I made the connection between swimming in the ocean in the summer and how good I feel in the summer and then how draggy I always get in November. So iodine is extremely important. In fact, it is needed by every single cell in your body. It's extremely needed by your reproductive system, all your reproductive glands and organs. The breasts will compete with the thyroid for iodine. The thyroid is your master iodine user. It creates four hormones. They're called together thyroid hormone, but there are actually four of them. And the abbreviated names are T1, T2, T3, and T4. So what are the one, two, three, four? Those are the atoms of iodine in each of those varieties of thyroid hormones. So T4 is thyroxine and it's used by the brain. It's very important for brain development and clear thinking. So iodine is put into your thyroid hormones and your thyroid hormones travel throughout your body. They regulate all your glands. They reach all your cells. And for instance, tissues of the 
intestines, the red blood cells, the salivary glands, tissues of the eye, the brain, the, the skin, iodine dependent. And where you have iodine deficiency in certain cells and systems, you're going to end up with this failure to heed the, it's time for you to retire, Mr. Cell, you've subdivided 70 times. That's called apoptosis. And then you're going to end up with possible cancers. So many independent studies have come to the conclusion that the epidemic of breast, prostate, uterine, ovarian, testicular cancer is due to iodine deficiency. Hmm. So iodine, this simple element that it costs almost nothing, take a few drops a day, just see how you feel with it. And yet, in about 1980, medical students stopped hearing about iodine. The AMA started putting the word out, the memo, to medical school instructors, hey, don't mention anything about iodine, just don't tell them. Tell them it messes up the thyroid. And that's what most doctors think today. Yet iodine is necessary for the thyroid. It's vital to the thyroid. And I'm going to tell you why. At the same time, starting about 30, 40 years ago, they began to put iodine's relatives into our daily lives. They just deluged us with them. What are iodine's relatives? Go to the periodic table and look. Iodine lines up with three or four other elements. Among them, bromine, chlorine, and fluorine. These other elements are electromagnetically negative in their charge. They're molecularly structured, very much like iodine. They have the same atomic mass, very similar. So the body is biochemically blind. It's only used to a few things that it uses. It's not used to 100,000 man-made compounds. It's not used to fluorine, bromine, and chlorine. It doesn't like those things, but it because it's biochemically blind, when you drink fluoridated water, when you clean your whole house to get rid of all those germs with chlorine bleach, when you swim in a swimming pool or sit in a hot tub that's got bromine in it for disinfection purposes, your poor thyroid, your cell receptors that are ready for iodine are going, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, it looks like iodine. Let me use it. And you're getting brominated, chlorinated, fluoridated thyroid hormone. That's what your thyroid is using. Mm. And so your body becomes very confused and very debilitated because actual toxic materials are now composing your thyroid hormone and they're being carried and delivered everywhere as though they were iodine. Interesting. And yeah, you mentioned fluoride. That, of course, is a huge buzzword in the conspiracy community, but it ties directly into this iodine deficiency situation, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, they've lied to us. They put it in the drinking water. You know why they put it in the drinking water? Why? Because fluoride was used in the Manhattan Project in the race to build the atomic bomb. Fluoride is considered the bully of the periodic table. It's a very volatile element. At room temperature, it can extract metal ore from rock. And fluoride was used to refine uranium it, all through the Manhattan Project. And they had fluoride plants everywhere in World War II. They had them in New Jersey. DuPont, you know, was using fluoride. They had them in... 
Hanford, Washington was using fluoride to make plutonium and they had it in the Cuyahoga River in Ohio. They had a big fluoride plant there and they would constantly have fluoride explosions because it's very, very volatile. And so all this noxious smoke and dust would spew out of factory chimneys and it would land everywhere. This is what toxified New Jersey. New Jersey was called the Garden State, and now it's state of industry. Literally, fluoride explosions out of the DuPont plant in World War II knocked over horses, cows, trees. Everything fell to the ground and died. But you know what? Americans were loyal. They wanted to win the war. They didn't want to make a big problem. People were getting sick. People were having skeletal fluorosis issues. They were having neurotoxic issues all from these fluoride explosions and then to say nothing of the industry workers i think there were something like 600,000 people who worked in the manhattan project throughout all the plants and they started having massive toxification they had teeth falling out bones that were rotting and becoming like honeycomb because the fluoride bores let me explain this about fluoride fluoride loves to bind with things. One thing it binds with is calcium. It likes to seek its own stability. It's highly unstable, so it goes and binds with other elements. So it'll go into all your calcium-rich tissues, your bones, your teeth, your cartilage, and it will make these little calcium fluoride spikes. And then they get bigger and bigger, and everything starts to hurt. All of your muscles catch on these spikes, and you can't move. So the industry workers from the Manhattan Project After the war was won, they said, well, we feel like crap. We're going to start suing. And the government was receiving a barrage of lawsuits. So they scratched their heads through a guy called Harold Hodge. He was a chemist and a super-duper Manhattan Project consultant and scientist and supervisor. And it was determined with Bernays, Hodge, all the biggies in marketing, government marketing octopus, to put fluoride in the drinking water because then they could tell us it protected our teeth and this way the Manhattan Project workers would not be able to claim where their fluorosis came from. Interesting. Yeah. I I mean, anytime I get into an argument about fluoride in the water and people thinking, oh, you know, you're one of those people who say it's a big conspiracy. I'm like, well, why not just put vitamins in the water or something completely non-controversial if it really was about our health? I mean, this might be a lot of new information for people, but when you look at the elite, I mean, Queen Elizabeth is 90, Prince Philip is 95, David Rockefeller is 101, Henry Kissinger is 95, George Bush Sr. is 92. I mean, just look at the numbers. It's not just the money they have. There's definitely something fundamentally different about the way they live. That's a very good point. Are they being kept alive artificially? Do they have access to things we don't have access to? I mean, they don't look great, quite honestly. David Rockefeller looks like parchment. Mm -hmm. But uh, they are still alive. And, you know, life expectancy for America has cascaded. It's not up there at the top of the list as it used to be or toward the top. It's now, I think, 42 or 47 in the world. And, yeah, we are being, you know, We are being forced to live with chemical challenges and radiation challenges. You mentioned polio. Polio is a radiation disease. It's caused by chemicals and radiation. It is not caused by a virus. Polio Mm -hmm. is a big 
it's a big collection of diseases. There's a, it's a spectrum again. It's an umbrella term. In fact, they discovered back in the 1800s that the children living near the apple orchards in, I think it was Massachusetts that were being sprayed with chemical pesticide. They were falling ill and becoming paralyzed. And they called it then palsy. And then they renamed this polio. And the polio vaccine was a big scam. And what happened after they administered it to, I think it was 400,000 American children, they said, well, guess what? Everybody's getting sick. They're getting sick. Doesn't matter. Polio hasn't stopped. This vaccine hasn't stopped anything. Oh, let's just redefine what polio is. Now, let me make a point. People were not getting polio from the vaccine. They were getting polio because they had inordinate exposures to radiation and chemicals because this was the age, the 50s, when they started. Remember I told you mothers were actually shaking cans of DDT like talcum powder onto children's sandwiches. They would have trucks driving through the cities and going to the public pools and just spraying the kids with DDT. Hmm. So people were getting neurological issues from all of these chemicals. And that's the first thing. Look, what is the nervous system? It is the system of information that goes through your body. And the information was coming out all flawed. The myelin around the nerve sheaths was being destroyed. Your body will destroy its supporting structures or allow them to become destroyed before it allows the gold to become destroyed. So what do cell phones do? They cause glioma and schwannoma. Those are cancers of the supporting structures to the materials of the heart and the brain. Glioma is the glue in which neurons sit. So when those structures start going, they become cancerous. It means that that material, those tissues, are energy deficient because they're getting pummeled, pummeled, pummeled with radiation and or chemicals. So the polio vaccine, at the time they dispensed you know, doses of this Salk and Sabin vaccine to 400,000 American children and people were still ending up with paralysis and polio. They renamed polio. They created a special paralytic polio. And in order to be counted as someone who had polio, it had to be paralytic polio and you had to have it for six months. So they just changed the qualifying designation, right? And they introduced a new disease. They said, oh, we got rid of polio. Look, the numbers have fallen. But now we have meningitis. It's new. We don't know where it came from. And today they're telling us we have all these new diseases and it's because of genetics. Hey, Lou Gehrig's ALS, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis. These are all new modern diseases. And they I remember reading my mother's magazines. I was a sort of precocious kid and I was reading Ladies Home Journal, Woman's Day, Family Circle, McCall's when I was 10, 11 years old. And I would read that the, there were new diseases. And when you got to be about 40, you had this new disease called MS. What was it? Nobody knew. But what is it? It's in the polio family. It's eventually paralytic. And you will get it when you're advanced enough in age that your cumulative load of toxicity, whether it's chemical or radiation, your body just says, I don't know what to do now. I, I can't fix these dying tissues. So we're back to sepsis and breakdown and degeneration. Hmm. Man, 
That is a lot of information. I mean, you mentioned spraying and I'm a little lucky because I think my parents had a little bit of intuition in that area because even in the 90s in my neighborhood in St. Louis, there would be these bug sprayers that would come through the neighborhood like a couple times a week. And my parents would always be like, look, when you see that thing, you come inside. But yet other kids in the neighborhood I'd be playing with, they're like, you know, what's the big deal? This is just for mosquitoes. And I'd be like, hey, my parents said, come inside. So I would. But you mentioned meningitis also. That's something I had when I was three that I'm, I'm deaf in the right ear now because of that. And I've always been curious why. I know you've looked into, there's m multiple types of meningitis and you've looked into uh, one of them pretty deeply. But even in the Vaxxed documentary that came out, they said there was a vaccine that seemed to be giving people meningitis that was big in Canada. And once they found out, they offloaded it on third world countries. But it's really hard to figure out exactly what to do. Everybody wants to be healthy and realizes we need to eat better and make sure our water is clean, but it's just harder and harder to do. Is there any additional advice you could share in terms of staying strong and healthy and avoiding some of these problems that maybe aren't so obvious? Craig, I can only talk about myself because I'm not a healthcare practitioner and, you know, I'm 57 now. And when I started taking iodine, I also noticed after six months that the pain in my fingers and my knuckles totally went away. At around 50, I started, I would have pain in my knuckles during the night, especially in the winter. And then during the day, I'd be sitting at the computer and working on first one knuckle, then the other massage, massage. And I thought, well, this sucks. I'm just going to end up with arthritis. I'm just going to have to get ready for it. What can I do? And then iodine, six months later, my hands are as flexible as rubber bands. I don't have any pain. So all I can say is my recommendation is start with the basics, natural salt, iodine, magnesium, and there's vitamin D, sunlight, get out in the sun, stare at the blue sky, open your eyes, don't use sunglasses all day, sunscreen. I sell natural sunscreens on my website if you must have them. There are areas, you know, that can get rather rough and burned, like the bridge of your nose, the tips of your ears, your knees. So there are small areas on your body that could use sunscreen, but use sunscreens that don't have, you know, SPF 50. This is all marketing. There's nothing higher than SPF 30, zinc-based. Your body loves zinc. I have a body wash that I sell, which I use every single day in the shower, just a quarter size, put it on my forearms and my chest and my face, and it builds the zinc into your skin. It gives you SPF number two automatically every day. You don't have to put it on except in the shower. And I'm not trying to market myself here. I'm just saying, look, these things helped me. I'm offering them to you. Magnesium cream, my total bestseller. I run out of it every two weeks. Put it on a sore area, your neck your whatever, arthritis, your bad knee, and magnesium relaxes tissues. It opens up those channels. So now the inflammation process can do what it needs to do. And in one minute, it takes the pain away. This is what I discovered. So there are so many ways, but they're so basic and they're so cheap that no one tells you about them because there's no money in iodine. There's no money in sunlight. There's no money in magnesium. There's no money in salt. It is so fascinating. I mean, we have been talking for a while. We've gone a little bit over time when we talked about so much. The only other thing I was going to ask you about, I know you've been writing about the big club or just the idea of secret societies and secret organizations that 
kind of control things from the top down, and also how it connects to Pizzagate, this most recent scandal that the kind of thing that conspiracy folks have been talking about forever, and it just is rarely exposed to this degree. You also mentioned to me before we started a a guy, Barry Satoro, who runs a, a YouTube channel under that name, and he even predicted there would be this shooter at one of the locations at Comic Ping Pong, and I think just the fact that this has happened and so many people are buying into the mainstream story that, oh, it's all fake news. It's all fake news. Now you have this shooter there, which just solidifies to the mainstream that, oh, now these conspiracy folks are actually dangerous because they're radicalizing unstable people who are going into businesses with guns now. And it really does work to demonize anyone who's talking about Pizzagate. But just because it is so fresh and so interesting and so unique. What are your thoughts on this just before we close out? Well, you're going to have me sitting here for another hour at least. <laughs> I have put some things up on my blog page, and the quick access to my blog page is sophiasmallstorm.com, and Sophia is with F, S-O-F-I-A. So, yeah, he did predict Barry Sotoro, or however he calls himself, that they would show up with a gunman in comment ping pong and he said i was nine days ahead of the cia and yeah that's what happened but i think that you know the foundation the fundaments of this pizzagate the pedophilia this has been going on for a very 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 long time and it's very deep it runs deep it shoots throughout the society from you know there's garden variety pedophilia and most women will probably say they have seen a flasher when they were a little girl, somebody flashed them. That's pretty mild compared to the ritual abuse that these poor, unfortunate children are going through in this illegal children trafficking market. I shouldn't even say illegal because it's such a weak term for it, but this, you know, horrific. I have to conclude that there is a diabolical, I never would have said this four or five years ago, that this is all totally satanic. There's a satanic principle, a satanic indulgence going on and these people somehow draw power from that and what supplies them with the permission greg is what i call the silence of the lambs so they have created some leaks of their activities which haven't surprised us although we who have been awake to things for a while are probably very shocked at the depth and and i don't even know what to call it but the the scope and the the quality of this it's the uh, it's just indescribably bad it's worse than most of us thought right mm -hmm. they know that your neighbors if you ran out and said hey google pizzagate they wouldn't want to give you the time of day or they might listen for a few minutes and then they would say as people have said to me well you know what i don't have time for that but you worry about that because you're really good at worrying about stuff like that so you worry about those kids and I will worry about my kids. And so that constitutes the silence of the lambs. The lambs are not going to bat an eye over this. The lambs are going to be what very much more interested in accepting the, you know, those online bullies, they're creating fake news because that's the path of least resistance that enables them to proceed with their, you know, consumption based lives, uh, narcissistic, micro worlds that they live in and supply all of these deep corporate 
underworld structures with the money to continue to buy the earth up from under our feet. And our permission in the form of silence of the lambs gives them the right in their own karmic, I don't know, understanding to continue to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's dark for sure. And they're throwing out all this stuff about fake news stories. And it just seems so obvious to me that this would be damage control. But it's clear that they're having great success turning the masses against the real researchers on this subject of Pizzagate because I'm getting so many people messaging me saying, stop saying Pizzagate, this has been debunked. And I'm like, how can you, you know, spend a lot of time listening to a show like this and not see that this big mainstream attack on fake news is clearly a reaction. It's like a damage control reaction. And, you know, I didn't want to open up a whole can of worms right as we're you know, kind of closing out this interview, but it is important. And I, I want to keep drawing attention to it before they sweep it under the rug like they tend to do. So I thought it deserved at least a mention. But Sophia, that does about do it for us. So enlightening. Thanks for all you do. Where can the people follow up on your work and even check out the items in your store that might be helpful for them? Uh, people can go to my blog, which I update on a fairly regular basis. Uh, sophiasmallstorm.com and that's really a link to About the Sky which is a website that I started a while ago but the most active pages on it are the blog page and the podcast page. I do my own podcasts. They can be found on YouTube as well. Not every one of them is on YouTube but my store is Avatar Products like Avatar the movie A-V-A-T-A-R products.com and there I share things that have worked for me and I'm going to tell you this if there's a lotion or a cream or a soap or whatever on my website, it's because it's the best I've ever found and used. I don't have stuff up there that's mediocre. And in the world of soap, lotion, etc., there's a lot of choices people have. So if I put anything in my store, like I have three kinds of iodine, several different varieties of magnesium. By the way, folks, Magnesium is magnesium chloride is antimicrobial. Remember those little detritive or organisms that live in your armpits and it chases away odor causing bacteria. So it becomes a very effective, very inexpensive, very safe, very scent free, stain free deodorant. And it's sold in my online store and it changes the biome in your armpit. So it chases those odor-causing bacteria away. You can actually skip a day. Hmm. So this is this is the kind of stuff. I've learned this through chatting with biochemists who make these products. I've innovated a few products. I've made some requests. Can you put this in a roll-on for me to sell as deodorant? And that's why a lot of those products are on my website. And it is, it's my pleasure to share them with you. I also give literature when I send them to you so you can read up and get some more information. And I'm here to support all of you in my discoveries, with my discoveries. So I, it's my pleasure to do this interview with you, Greg. You're very bright. You're a great interviewer. And thank you so much for being here in San Diego and adding to the uh, knowledge base. <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much. You're just too kind. But Powerful stuff. Uh, you are doing great work. It's definitely 
important and just having the store there for people to be able to actually get real tangible items from someone that they can trust is a great resource. So keep digging for sure. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Of course, Greg, I will just throw in one more thing. I do create every month a newsletter which goes by snail mail so you can snuggle up with a little dog biscuit on the fireplace rug and read it and that is available by subscription and that's my way of collating and cohering my rabbit hole adventures into one um you know kind of like contained form every month so a lot of people who get the newsletter have stayed with me since 2010 when i started it so you can find that there's a little place to click on my website that tells you how to order it you can read samples okay so thank you thank you so much you got it thank you all right people sophia Smallstorm. i really do like her work she's someone who's always digging into new stuff i love hearing about the alternative side when it comes to medicine and health as well I just think knowing how much manipulation there's been in the medical field by Rockefeller Industries, it makes everything suspect. The vaccine agenda, the role of antibiotics, and today we're looking into germ theory itself. I don't know what to think about a lot of this stuff because we have had guys like Ed Haslam in his book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, making a great case that the polio vaccine is largely responsible for the cancer epidemic due to the contamination of the SV40 virus. And then we have Sophia doing a lot of research into doctors who have said, no, the entire germ theory is wrong. There are no viruses as we think of them. If you remember talking to Patrick Jordan, I mean, he seemed very much in line with that idea. And it's a big, bold statement. It takes a lot of context to explain. I hope we made at least a fairly clear introductory case for the position. And we talked a lot about what viruses aren't and what they don't do. We didn't really get to break down what they are. Clearly, people in biology labs are looking at something in those test tubes. I asked Sophia in an email what viruses actually are, and she said it is a lot to unpack, but the salient point is that viruses don't cause disease. And of course, you can follow Sophia's work if you want to get deeper into that or follow some of the information that she laid out. And this is one of those episodes of the Higher Side Chats where the first and second hour are quite different. In the first hour, we tried to talk about this push into biological darkness, sepsis, and the dismantling of germ theory, of course. But in the second hour, we focused on the examination of a widespread eugenics campaign and a process of slowly altering biology itself, which I find to be really interesting. A lot of this stuff, of course, is rooted in Nazi programs going on in World War II, and then we brought these people into the American machine. And then we get MK Ultra, MK Often, and the experiments of the 50s and 60s. And who really knows how these programs have changed and spread since then, or just since 9-11 in the 2000s. There is a nexus of elite players and corporate fronts at the heart of almost every industry and every agenda. And I thought the symbolism around the Apple building and the use of the name Artemis were some pretty interesting threads. And if you want to go down those rabbit holes, sign up for Plus. You can go to thehiresidechats.com and get a free seven-day trial. Or you can just sign up like a boss for five bucks a month at thehiresidechatsplus.com. Support the show. Make me a happy kid this Christmas. You know you love THC. Just treat yourself to a pretty cheap gift and make me happy at the same time. Also in this episode, 
we get deep into the Morgellons condition, too. People pulling out fibers stamped with logos and strange insect-looking things out of their skin. It's a rare, small thing now, but is it going to start spreading like autism has? Maybe it's an invasion completely independent from the elite. But it is weird as hell, and I was glad we got to spend some time on that, too. Of course, if you're still looking for Christmas gifts, the Higher Side Clothing is in full swing at thehiresideclothing.com. The designs are on another level. We didn't just slap a word like powerful on a hoodie. A lot of thought and artistic juice went into creating some of this stuff. A little kid said my hypnotist Mickey Mouse shirt was really cool the other day, and I was like, yeah, you're right. It is. And this just isn't some shirt I'm wearing. This is my company. And if you navigate your youth carefully and avoid being sucked into groupthink and mediocrity, you could have your own company too, kid. People, thanks for listening. The rest of December is going to be quite great. We got Sylvia Ivanoa, we got Peter Lavenda, we got Pepe and Keck. It's going to be a solid roster of shows that you're going to want to hear two hours of, I promise. But that's it for me today. Your move, Morgellons makers, techno-eugenics engineers, and sepsis cycle sorcerers. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see... The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn
My, my good people of the internet, it looks like Christmas is finally here. And I got some of my guests here to help me help you spread a little holiday love. Good luck. <laughs> oh, well, I know here at the Higher Side Chats, we couldn't be more giddy about it. And why not celebrate the corporate-driven season of spending with a gift that, oh, so ironically, spits right in the face of the Christmas machine with the sweet, sweet softness of a t-shirt for the rebellious fashionista in your life from my little clothing brand over at Conspiracies.net. This is one of the most degrading things that anyone could possibly do. Uh, thanks, Freeman. Or better yet, give them the gift that gives all year long with a subscription to THC Plus for one of your oh-so-precious friends and family. I know that's what Jim Mars is doing, right, man? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence myself. <laughs> Guys, this is not constructive. Duncan Trussell, help me out here. If I were Satan, the first idea I'd want to implant into their heads is... Okay, that's not what I had in mind either, but if you know someone who enjoys THC, just go to the HigherSideChatsPlus.com with any credit or debit card and put in the email address and information for that special someone in your life rather than yourself. I know I and all the great guests on THC would really appreciate it. We don't want to kill anybody or hurt anybody. We want to make a system that works. Jacques, I think that approach is actually illegal. Let's not do that. It was a great idea, but it doesn't go far enough. No, man, it went too far. But guys, all I'm saying is a year or six months of THC Plus makes a great gift. Believe me, I just signed Douglas Dietrich up for a year, and he couldn't be happier. (laughs) I love you dearly. Uh, (laughs) Yes, uh, honestly, uh, you flatter me too much. If you were a member of the opposite sex, I would propose. See what I tell you. Merry Christmas, people. <laughs> uh.